Has NATO drawn Russia into the new Cold War? The view from Moscow, who tells Putin what to think of us. Afghanistan, Lashkagars on the brink of yet another collapse. The drone of the future, but who pulls the trigger? And PTSD, everyone knows what it means, but who knows how to handle it? NATO defence ministers have been meeting in Brussels for two days. In spite of a long agenda, the meeting could have been based on two subjects. The military support for their own government responses to Russian manoeuvres and pressures, and secondly, the revision of military numbers and deployments in the three out-of-area operations, Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria. Well, Professor Michael Clark was until recently the Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and I'm joined also by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, NATO exercises may be part of long-term planning, but they're far more publicly geared to opposing Russian pressures on Europe. Yes, they are. I mean, part of this is reassurance, to, particularly to the Baltic states, but also to Poland, that NATO's Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, that that article really means something. And it's also a demonstration to Russia that uh, NATO is a potent force and that the red line, the, the boundary between NATO and non-NATO countries, really means something. So we'll see a lot more of this in the future. The question is, for all the activity we see, is there enough real mass there? Is there a critical mass of forces there sufficient really to deter the Russia? We just don't know that. Indeed. And Christopher, we've seen a lot of exercise anaconda going on at the moment in Poland, that huge NATO exercise. And also this, uh, this idea of these four brigades going to Eastern European countries. Yeah. I mean, what, what you've got to put this in some sort of context, and that is that you can, you can push further east. And at one point, you have to say, how long can I sustain that? Let's just say that you bought 4,000 uh, men in, in, into further in Eastern Europe. You've got to have a force of something like 14,000 or 12,000 to maintain it. You've also got to decide it's not just a number you send there. It's a, What are you putting in? You're putting in engineers, sappers in there, you're putting uh, infantry, mechanised uh, infantry or whatever. And then you have to look back at your own organisation and say, how long can I sustain, mm. sustain it? That's why NATO... Then comes in and says, OK, you, uh, yeah. you country do it for six months when they'll bring another country who will sustain it for the next six so, months. So, Professor Michael Clark, just, just recap on exactly what is being proposed here. Uh, well, we've got the, uh, the, um, the rapid joint task force, the very rapid joint task force, plus some more sustainment. Um, but the question is always the numbers. Uh, the fact is that NATO could deploy up to a brigade of 5,000 uh, within 72 hours. But if you look at Russian deployment schedules, they could deploy something like 30,000 in that hmm. time of variable quality. That's where it comes down to critical mass. So NATO is doing what it said it would do back in 2014 at the Cardiff summit. The question now is that the, the problem has ramped up, the threat uh, as far as it's a military threat has ramped up. So is NATO now doing enough in delivering on the 2014 commitment is it still uh, a bit behind the game? And what's the answer? You're saying it is, are you? Yes. At the moment, I mean, NATO is doing all the right things, but it's not doing enough of any one thing. And as Christopher said, there's the issue of sustainment there. I mean, we can get troops to an area reasonably quickly, not as quickly as the Russians can, but reasonably quickly. But are they there with all the backup they need, and could they be sustained to go forward or even to stay in, in one place for long enough to really do the job? You then get into another idea here, and that is... Uh, uh, is you have prepositioned 
of forces, but most importantly, pre-positioned equipment and establishments. And then you can get into the sustainability uh, side of it. But there's another side. You know, as Mike's saying, uh, you, you can put in, let's say, you can put in a brigade in 48 hours if you really put your mind to it, a bit of planning. And the Russians could move three divisions in that same mm. sort of period. But what are we talking about? You know, when Mike was, was saying about oh, it's, it's to reassure the Baltic states, when you look on television, for example, and you see a whole load of tanks going through, a whole load of trucks going through, a NATO exercise, that is what, say, the Baltic states need for their own political development and also to reassure their own people that NATO is doing the thing. It may not be anything more than a mechanised infantry battalion that's going through there, but... But it has the effect. Does it have the effect? Does it, it work? It does have the effect. It has the effect. It doesn't. And then we get to the next point, don't we? Uh, the three divisions that the, uh, the Russians are putting in and the few brigades, that, are they, uh, do we really expect them to engage? And the answer is, so far, there's not enough evidence to suggest that you're going to. And what you have to be doing is to say, we are willing to show you that we are prepared to do so. Mm. But that's quite a different thing. So look at it as if you were a Baltic prime minister trying to reassure your public or a president of the United States and said, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to help NATO out on this. OK, Professor. One of, one of the details, Kate, on this, the, uh, on Tuesday, the CGS, Chief of the General Staff, General Nick Carter, was in front of the Defence Committee and he said there, you know, broadcast, so it's in the public domain now, yep, that I remember we, we're we did bringing it. all the troops back from Germany, but we're going to leave some of the, uh, some of the facilities there. Mm. Um, if you were a Baltic Prime Minister, would you be reassured, reassured Professor? Uh, to a degree, yes. Um, but on the other hand, the Russians have been making some very, very bellicose statements. And their disinformation campaign, where they report in the Russian press things happening in the West which simply don't happen, that campaign What kind, has of, been what kind of information up. are you talking about? What kind oh, of well, things? on May the, May the 8th, May the 9th, they reported that, which was Victory Day, Vic, you know, VE in Europe Day, they reported that there were demonstrations all over the Western world, including in London and in the Baltic states, celebrating the victories of the Red Army. In other words, that there's a, a real popular Russian pro Russian element out there in the world. These demonstrations never happened. They said mm. there was a big demonstration in London. There wasn't. They said there were demonstrations in Estonia. There, wasn't, there weren't. It's a crude disinformation campaign and it's building up all the time. So the Russians are preparing for the, giving themselves the option of some action sometime in the next, let's say, five to ten years. Mm. There's not a second great patriotic war they're aiming at. Can I just, just one thought, Mike? Um, my overall impression of a two days of NATO meeting is that a few years ago you wouldn't have got this sort of meeting. They are, we now expect NATO, formed for the defence of Europe, to talk about out-of-area operations. I mean, when you yes. think Afghanistan was a NATO operation in a place that majority of people in NATO countries didn't even know where it was, mm. and that is what has changed. But change with it, of course, is the responsibility and the obligations that have come with it to continue long after the, the official war has ended. Absolutely, and that's something that NATO was never geared up to do, sustainment operations. NATO was there to defend in an outright war the territories of Western Europe. So all this is, is very different for NATO, and it's been doing it now for 10 years in Afghanistan and now uh, in Iraq and Syria. Uh, and it doesn't sit easily with the organisation, particularly at a time when uh, Europe itself is now back under some degree of military challenge. OK, um, many forecasts ahead of next week's EU referendum, Christopher, both in and out have claimed dire consequences for the UK security if the other side wins. On balance, where are we? On balance, and not taking sides, hmm. um, I would suggest that it says either in or out doesn't make any difference to NATO obligations, 
to the obligations elsewhere. In other words, there is no military nor much of a security difference between the two sides. Still to come, the RAF drones without the need for a human operator and why Britain isn't doing enough to tackle PTSD. In 1991, Russia was told by NATO that it would not encroach on its former territories, those countries in the Warsaw Pact, known in Moscow as the Near Abroad. Within 18 months, NATO had gone back on that promise. Exercises bringing former Warsaw Pact countries into NATO. Is that mistrust the basis of President Putin's continuous pressure on the former Iron Curtain countries? Well, let's talk to Derek Avir from the Centre for Russian-European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Birmingham. Good to speak to you today, Dr Avir. Is this a reminder that analysts should spend time looking at all this NATO activity through Putin's eyes, maybe? Um, I'm not sure that's a very helpful way to put it. Um, I think the problem here is that the Western narrative um, makes any attempt to see matters through Putin's eyes tantamount to appeasement. Um, Since the annexation of Crimea there's been a huge negative reaction and at the moment there is little real chance of sort of getting the Russians I think to um, or or, or getting the Russians really to sort of listen to what we have to say there have been some diplomatic advances in the over the last year or two led uh, in large part by Germany um, but not a great deal positive in response and both sides are really not talking to each other um, and I don't really think that Western policymakers uh, and Western elites are really sort of thinking hard enough about really what, you know, where the Russians are coming from. What, what should they be thinking? How should they be gleaning that information? Um, well, the, the, as I say, the narrative is that we have a hostile and revisionist regime. Um, which is really going to kind of overturn uh, the gains of, of the of the last 25 years of the post-Cold War period. Um, but my feeling is that at the moment, uh, the Putin regime is actually struggling to formulate a genuine strategy. I think the uh, invasion of or the annexation of Crimea and the the military help to the uh, to the rebels in eastern Ukraine was was pretty much a kind of reactive measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not really well, very well thought out. And that, in a sense, uh, the the Kremlin, Putin, has painted himself into the corner a little bit. Um, and really, you know, there, there 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 is some kind of rethinking of of Russian foreign and security policy priorities. But there is actually uh, there are actually, I believe, arguments within Russian elites of the best way forward. And I don't really think we 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 have a, a, a clear enough and a full enough idea of what of, of what that uh, that argument is or what those debates are. Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Professor Michael Clark, do you think President Putin lacks a genuine strategy? Yes, <clears throat> I don't think he's a strategic thinker at all. As we were saying, he's a great tactician. Uh, and I think that, that Putin has, a, has an instinct that he wants to re-establish Russian control in the former Soviet space. So he has a vision, but he doesn't have a strategy to uh, achieve that vision. And he certainly doesn't think particularly, I think, about the wider consequences of putting that vision into operation. But he, he, he takes opportunities. And he puts himself in, in a crisis situation very often. And when he's, when he's in a crisis, if there's a safe option and a risky but possibly beneficial 
beneficial option, his instinct is to go for the risky but possibly beneficial option. Mm. At start in 1999, remember, he became prime minister originally under the then president because he was brought in to deal with Chechnya, and he was absolutely ruthless. He took decisions that other people wouldn't take, and he succeeded. So, like many crisis leaders, he's lucky. Uh, eventually, of course, his luck runs out. But when he's lucky and he's bold, he believes in his own judgment. So under pressure, he will always do the risky thing, which keeps his, op- his opposition on the back foot. It's, he's a tactician, but he's not a strategist. OK, so Dr. Avir, how does President Putin's advisory team actually work? Who, who are they and how much they look at the motives of NATO? It's not always possible. It's not always easy to see within uh, what you might call the black box of, hmm. of Kremlin decision making. I mean, on the on the wider basis, Putin chairs the Security Council, which used to be a consultative organ, um, but now uh, is composed of heads of all the main government agencies, the Speaker of the Parliament, um, and really sort of brings in most of the main, if you like, decision makers in Russia. But I think also there is a, a smaller team, a smaller core team. Probably, I think, composed of Sergei Ivanov, Putin's chief of staff, who is, I think, pretty well known to international uh, international diplomats. Uh, Nikolai Pietrushev, former head of the, uh, uh, the FSB, um, who is now the Security Council Secretary. Defence Minister Shoigu, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov. Uh, the heads of the security agencies, but also I think within the inner circle, you've got other people um, about about whom we know something, but let's say they have less well-defined roles. So the head of Rosneft, for example, Igor Sechin, um, and uh, somebody who I think is becoming very important, the deputy head of the presidential administration, uh, administration Vyacheslav Valodin, and this kind of core group um, are really those, these are the people that Putin trusts. He works very largely on trust, you know, we don't have the same kind of like institutional checks and balances in in uh, in, in Russian politics as as we probably have. Uh, I hesitate to say this after the invasion of Iraq, but we we you know we probably have or at least had to just, an extent in the UK. Just briefly, Doctor Avir, how do you see relations with Russia developing going forward? Um, I probably will go against the majority of of Western experts, and I actually think that within the next two or three years that the the Russian regime... uh, Don't don't forget we've got presidential uh, elections in a couple of years' time. I mean, that might complicate matters. I believe that within the next two or three years that the Russian regime will take a sober look at where where its interests lie, and uh, it does have, uh, you know, it does have substantial interests in maintaining positive relations with Europe. This is complicated. Um, it's complicated by uh, things like US policy. US, US foreign policy could become unpredictable. Um, the Russians still have really substantive issues with um, arms control, so the uh, ballistic missile defense mm. uh, shield, which, uh, which um, NATO is putting in place, which is an American construct, which, which will be run by NATO. Um, concerns over U.S. Uh, weaponry, new advanced weaponry. There's a ho- there are a whole host of questions which we need right. to sit down and start to talk about. All right, Dr. Derek Avere from the Centre for Russian, European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Birmingham. Thank you for joining us today. The Defence Secretary says the United States is looking again at its decision to halve its troop presence in Afghanistan by the end of the year. Washington had planned to reduce its 9,800-strong non-combat force to just over 5,000 by the end of 2016. Michael Fallon told reporters at a NATO meeting in Brussels that the move is being reconsidered. The US Defence Secretary Ash Carter was asked whether President Obama was looking at a change of plan history indicates that he's willing to look 
on the basis of circumstances uh, in Afghanistan at the U.S. Uh, at, uh, both authorities and force presence, and I expect he'll do that again as the year goes on. Christopher, um, it's reported that U.S. troops are fighting to hold the capital of Helm and Lashkar. Just bring us up to date on this. There was a lot of um, there was a lot of uh, pushing in from the at the brigade level by the Americans uh, to say that they needed reinforcement. They also needed uh, a better treatment and better usage of the Afghan army, which didn't come about. The Afghans found that they couldn't operate well without close air support, for example. And this is one of the reasons why the uh, one of the reasons why the Ashkarta is now saying, "Well, uh, perhaps we've got to stay much longer. Perhaps we've got to reinforce. In what form we reinforce, we're not quite sure yet. And perhaps it's one of the last things mm. that President Pu- President uh, Obama may have to uh, have to endorse. Whether Congress goes along with it is another matter. Professor Michael Clark, I'm sure there are former and current British soldiers listening and thinking, to put it politely, what on earth has happened here? Yes, uh, I mean particularly, I mean Sangin is always is almost all under Taliban control at the moment. Although again, we should be careful when we say Taliban control, we really mean sort of heavy Taliban influence because the Taliban, as it were, wax and wane according literally to whether it's day or night and where we are in the week. But it is the case that. Um, Helmand, having been stabilised in the way that we stabilised it, is now effectively destabilised. And the the idea that there is fighting now around Lashkagan and the outskirts of Lashkagan is deeply worrying because that was the centre of British operations and it was a pretty safe place when uh, you know our troops and people like us were there. Um, so it's very sobering. It's not entirely surprising, but also uh, if there is reinforcement, if the Afghan army can be supported, then remember the Taliban can't mount a full offensive across the whole country. They can push in certain areas, and partly for symbolic reasons, the Taliban have tried to make a push in Helmand in order to gain the political point that after all that was expended in Helmand, they can still come back. Well, if we can reverse that process, uh, I think we we could also, or the world could also, demonstrate how limited Taliban... Uh, influence and Taliban capabilities really are. Don't forget, you need never miss an episode of this programme. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Now, last summer on this programme, we asked whether artificially intelligent robots could become the weapons of the future. It was after a warning from Professor Stephen Hawking, who signed a ban on offensive autonomous weapons that could kill without the involvement of humans. Well, now it looks like his worst fears could be a step closer with the development of a new drone. Our reporter, Kate Wathel, has been to see the Taranis at BAE Systems in Wharton and spoke to Martin, who heads the business development team. What you're looking at here um, is a configuration which is designed to be um, low observable to radars and to infrared signatures. Um, That means you have no fin on the aeroplane. So you end up with a very slippery shape. Um, So two or three things you then need to build into the way in which this design works. Um, you hide the engine um, uh, in, this, in the centre of the aeroplane, uh, but you then need a very advanced flight control system that can tr- control this aeroplane. We're, we're used to having um, vehicle control on things like a typhoon where the aeroplane is unstable. Um, and that assists the pilot's flying. We're now taking it on to the next stage because, of course, there's no pilot in the aeroplane. So the pilot is now on the ground, um, and you're now moving on to a more sophisticated shape. So it's that onboard flight control system that gets the aeroplane in the air and keeps it flying. 
when it's out there by itself, how is it avoiding things like obstacles or even threats if it's under attack? Okay, so um, effectively the, the system builds up a level of um, situational awareness. Um, that's that's a built up of things which may be fed from other systems to the guys on the ground as well as sensors the aeroplane has on itself and it builds that overall situation picture. Um, now, Tyrannis as a demonstrator doesn't have all those technologies built into it yet. Um, but it has effectively the core frame into which we can start adding those things as they themselves become available. There's a lot about this artificial intelligence. So in layman's terms, how does this thing know what it's looking for in terms of a target? Okay, so um, let's perhaps step back in into the way in which a mission might work. Um, you build up a mission plan um, in, in, a, in the ground station. It's not dramatically different to the way in which you build a mission plan for a, for a hawk or a typhoon or a tornado. Um, the difference, of course, is the fact the guy that's commanding the vehicle is on the ground, he's not sat in the aeroplane. So you start with that mission plan. That has a level of awareness about what that environment looks like. It has a target area. Um, it has uh, information about maybe where threats are. And it will build a route to avoid those things it knows about. What it then needs to be able to do is adapt that mission to maybe a pop-up threat that arrives that it didn't know about before it set off and route itself around that. Um, another thing which we've developed um, through a number of our demonstrators over the years is an ability for these aeroplanes, as well as having sensors on board, is to onboard, process the images it gets from those sensors. So rather than having a video feed to the ground, which you would have in something like a Reaper, we're now saying, well, no, we'll give you a job to do, we'll give you an area to search, look for buildings or people or tanks or whatever it might be as a target, and identify those and tell me when you've found them. So you're now putting a level of automation to the way the aeroplane senses what it's looking for. We are not automating the weapon release process. I think we've got to be very clear about that. There is always a human being in the loop at the point of the key ends of the, of the mission. So... The automation is around helping the vehicle fly and helping the mission job get done and assisting the crew on the ground um, without naturally taking complete control. This is not fully autonomous weapon flying. That's the head of BAE Systems Development Team speaking to our reporter, Kate Waffle. Um, Christopher, just explain exactly how Tyrannus might work. Tyrannus works by uh, having what we would call a stealth profile. In other words, you can't see it very easily. It also works because it has a limited amount of contact with the ground because of what's on board. If you put into the brain, we'll call it that, of Tyrannus, uh, a system which says every time you see something, you relate it on board to what you've already seen or what you can see elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And you put it into the system and it produces a result, you then carry on the operation. But all the time, what it's seeing, what it's putting into the, in, into the system has to be reflected back somewhere into the command and control system on the ground. So it's never off the leash. That's the most important thing at this stage. At some point, it's going to go off the leash. And Professor Michael Clark, would there ever be a desire by the MOD for a completely autonomous weapon system? Very doubtful, because there's too many moral and legal difficulties with that. I mean, where you put the person in this is obviously a matter of judgment, but my view is, in general, that somebody somewhere, either in uniform or in the battle space, has to take responsibility for any killing that this sort of system does. You can't say, well, it's the responsibility of the Prime Minister. It has to be somebody in uniform or in the battle space. All right, Professor Michael Clark, good to speak to you today. Thank you for your time. The Independent Police Complaints Commission is investigating after a former soldier died 
after being tasered by police in the Welsh town of Llanelli. Officers were called after Spencer Bynan was seen acting oddly. The 43-year-old was a former member of the Royal Welsh Regiment who taught Iraq and Afghanistan and served in the army for 15 years. Well, he'd been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Matthew Green is a journalist who blogs about PTSD. Good to speak to you today, Matthew. Is it only when tragedies like this happen that PTSD gets a proper recognition, really? Well, it's certainly the case that this sort of tragedy shines a spotlight um, on a problem that's really happening behind closed doors for the most part up and down the country. Um, we know that the army has taken a more proactive role in the last few years. It's launched its Don't Bottle It Up campaign to try to encourage uh, personnel who are suffering symptoms to come forward. Um, but I think what we need is a senior serving officer in the army or the navy or the air force to come out and say look i've had post-traumatic stress disorder it hasn't ruined my career uh, and that's really i think the only way that uh, other ranks are going to start uh, coming forward as well you've got people obviously uh, raising the profile prince harry notably at the uh, invictus games in florida he's pledged to fight the stigma is it enough well, it's certainly an important start. And, and I think Prince Harry's done a great job in raising awareness um, about post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health problems, uh, depression and anxiety, uh, for example. Um, but, I, you know, I think the real issue is lack of services in the UK. I've spoken to very many veterans uh, or ex-forces while researching my book, Aftershock. And so many of them describe being bounced around the system like ball bearings in a pinball machine um, without ever finding the help they really need to get better. There are therapies out there. There are some excellent uh, psychiatrists and psychotherapists who can make a difference. Um, but it's joining the two together where, where we're really falling down. How many veterans do you think suffer from PTSD? Oh, it's a very puzzling question. Um, there is research out there that will try to put a percentage on that. Um, it says it's about 7% of those who serve in combat roles um, and about 4% for the rest of the military, um, which is not far off the civilian rate. Um, but a lot of people aren't entirely persuaded by these numbers. Um, and we've seen a big increase, for example, uh, in the number of veterans coming forward asking for help at a charity like Combat Stress. Um, the leading veterans mental health charity. Um, the bottom line is we don't know for sure how many people out there who've served are, are struggling with these problems. But it's clearly a, a significant issue. Uh, and we, we need to be doing a lot more to ensure that the services are in place to help them. Oh, it depends on us, Chris Valias here listening to this. Yeah, I mean, just because the, the work I've been doing with a particular charity, what we found is, for example, the NHS cannot even support the, um, the post-traumatic stress disorder medicine in civilian society. They don't have it, so it's not a question of the military necessarily left out. The other thing which they don't understand, and very few of us do, is that soldiers, and it's mostly soldiers, once out of the military context, find it harder in civilian life with or without PTSD. Well, Matthew Green, what do PTSD sufferers really need? Well, I think the first thing is we need qualified therapists who really understand trauma. Um, there's been a lot of advances uh, over the last decade or so in terms of understanding what's happening in the brain and the body 
in somebody who's suffering from PTSD. You know, it's really important to recognize that this isn't just something that happens in the mind. It's very much a physical injury um, that leaves an imprint on the brain and, and the physiology as a whole. It means that a, a trauma survivor's fight or flight response is really out of balance, so they can react uh, very violently or, or, or disproportionately to even a sort of minor irritation or provocation. And it's really finding the sort of therapies that actually work in recalibrating that system. Uh, and I've seen some people undergo some really quite remarkable transformations with the right help. Um, and I really hope that Aftershock will almost serve as a manifesto to make those kind of treatments available to a broader number of people. We've been working with one guy that's supposed to have a brain problem for the past six months. It's only recently they found that it was a physical problem mm. and it wasn't the brain at all. Um, but they, they said, oh, they wrote it off and said, oh, well, that's PTSD. Mm. I'm sure we'll be talking about this subject a lot more in the future. Matthew Green, author of Aftershock, Fighting War, Surviving Trauma and Finding Peace. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Christopher, just before we go, um, a lot to look forward to next week, eh? There is. Uh, I tell you what I like. I like the idea of the Prince of Wales is going up to see the second carrier, the Prince of Wales. Aha. And he will take with him a gavel, and he will bang that gavel on the side of the ship. That gavel is going to sea uh, with the Prince of uh, Wales, i.e. the ship, probably on one day with the Prince of Wales himself. Good, good photo opportunity. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS Sitrep. We're back same time next week from me, Kate Chibot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.